the In Conversation podcast series with author Nigel Beckles. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the In Conversation podcast series. My guest today is author Deanne Heron. Deanne, welcome to my podcast. Thank you very much, Nigel. It's a pleasure and thank you for the invitation. Well, yes. How's the weather down? You live in Manchester, don't you? Manchester, UK? Yes. I, I live in Manchester, which is northern England. And the weather at the moment is just, oh, I can't even describe it. It's so beautiful. I've never seen weather like this. I think since I was a little girl. Blue skies. The temperatures are much higher than they would be in April. Perfect lockdown weather. Mm, okay. Well, if you if you can go outside, yes. Maybe well, not. Well, this is it. The garden. <laughs> lucky. I'm very lucky. I have a little garden which I can go and sit in. So I, I'm quite lucky. Okay. Okay. So talking about your location, where did you grow up? Right. I was actually born in Kingston, which is the capital of Jamaica. And that's where my mother was living at the time. But my mom was given the opportunity to come to England. She was sent for, which is a phrase that um, the Caribbeans used, when I was three. So she left me and my baby sister with my grandma in Portland, uh, which is in the countryside. And I lived there with my gran until my grand died unfortunately when I was six I lived with a cousin until I was nine and then I came to England when I was nine years old and that was oh that was a shock it was like um you know I I describe it as traveling from the earth to the moon but I was still breathing (laughs) okay so how was it growing up in Jamaica then well I remember vaguely you know I went I went to private school what they call private school which was the nursery the church nursery school when I was three and I remember even then you know you you learned your ABC and we learned to count and colours and different things it was very strict you know and good manners we had to stand you know when miss came into the room everybody had to stand we were sort of three four years old but you know there were certain standards that were expected and then when I was six years old I went to what we call big school which is primary school and again I remember it was lovely because I was one of the younger ones of all my cousins and they looked after me but again in the classroom it was very very strict you couldn't talk uh, you know you'd get things thrown at you or you know you'd you'd get um, a ruler hit on your hand or your legs smacked so you know discipline the very strict discipline but it was lovely it was a really lovely time okay so what were your favorite subjects when you were at school in jamaica when I was in Jamaica, I can't remember very much. I loved storytelling because I remember we obviously we didn't have television then. But I don't know if you've heard of Miss Lou Louise Bennett. Yes. She is a famous art. She's a um, storyteller, writer. Uh, she does all sorts, and she used to have a program on the radio. On I can't even I don't know what evening it was, but we used to sit on my aunt's veranda, and there'd be like ten, fifteen of us. All my cousins would come round, the neighbours would come round, and we would listen to these stories, um, you know, the comedy, comedy um, storytelling from Miss Lou. So I think from then I loved storytelling, and then when I came here because I had to babysit my younger brothers and sisters while my mum went out to work, that was when I first started making up stories to entertain them. 
So I would say maybe writing and reading were my favourite subjects. Okay. So when you arrived in the UK and finished off your, I suppose, primary education, as it were, did you go to college or university? Yes, I did. Um, there's there's a council estate on the the outskirts of Manchester within Shored, and um, you've heard of that. And we were one of the first black families to be moved onto that council estate. And I did my last year at Bagley Hall Primary School. And um, I, I, I mean, it, it's. It was difficult because I suffered a lot of racism, but I got a lot of support from my class teacher, Mr. Lawrence, and he is one of the main people where I started writing. Uh, but that's a long story that took a long time to tell. So I left Bagley Hall Junior School and went to New Old Green High School, uh, where I did my A-levels. Unfortunately, I couldn't afford to go to university, but I was fortunate, you know, I, I, I never let anything stop me. And I applied to the city council uh, for a job, even though all my friends were saying, oh, they're not going to give you that. They don't employ black people. But I got the job. And they then had um, a scheme where you could go to Manchester University, a day release to do your degree. And again, I applied. And again, all my friends said, you know, they're not going to give you that. You know, so, but I applied and I got it. And that was how I was able to go to, it was Manchester Metropolitan University at the time. I went there on a day, one day a week, um, while I worked for Manchester City Council, and I did my degree in public administration. So, yes, that's, that's my university education. Mm. So, what particular life experience do you believe changed you in a big way? Do you believe anything kind of changed your well, direction from where you were heading Yes, I think when I came to England initially, you know, and saw the life was hard. I mean, we were poor, but it's like everybody was poor, whether you were white or black, we we're all poor. You know, we went to jumble sales to get our clothes and, you know, there was all sorts going on. But I think being given the opportunity to come here, I was just determined, you know, I'm not going to let my mom down. My mom has brought me to this country, so I've got to do the best I can, you know, to do the best I can at school, be the best. Because my mom used to always say to us, you know, I had to come from, from Jamaica and go and work in a factory. And none of my children are ever going to work in a factory. You know, so she used to make us sit down and study and, you know, do what we had to do. So, um. It, 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 was, um, it was difficult, but I think being given the opportunity that I felt a lot of my friends that I'd left in Jamaica would never have, they, I think, gave me the motivation to try and be the best that I can be. But maybe the, the, change, the big changing point was having my daughter. I had my first daughter when I was 21. And because I'd suffered racism, I was a very shy person. I only spoke when I was spoken to. I was I was strong inside and nothing would stop me. But, you know, if I was in a room with people, you wouldn't know I was there. Uh, I wouldn't say anything. And then I noticed when my daughter was about two or three, I noticed she was doing the same thing. She was hiding behind my skirt. If anybody spoke to her, she wouldn't answer. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, no, 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 this can't continue. So then I made the decision, right, from now on, we were in the church at the time, we were Seventh-day Adventists, and every, whenever they asked me to say the prayer or to do anything on the platform, I would always say no. And I thought, right, from now on, anytime I'm asked to do anything, I'm going to do it, no matter how scared I am. 
And that's what I did, Nigel. And my little daughter then started following me and came out of her shell. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you're a very prolific writer. So how many books have you written so far? Oh, my gosh. Nigel, um, let me see. I've had two volumes of short humorous stories called Pardon the Money Stories published. And they are about my memories as a little girl, you know, when the family used to get together. Because I'm trying to to keep the Jamaican paths we're going and just share memories that my grandchildren will never experience. So I've got two volumes of short humorous stories. I've also had two volumes of poetry published called Contemplation and I have just had a science fiction novel called The Mandari Chronicles published by Conscious Dreams Publishers. Okay well done so that's a lot that's a rather great departure from your usual work so what what inspired you to go down that particular direction in terms of writing about science fiction? Writing has always been my first love and I've always loved science fiction I've, my, my imagination has always operated on another level. But when when I was younger, I used to read a lot of science fiction books. can't even remember any of them now, but I know I just absolutely loved science fiction. But I never actually wrote science fiction. And about, it must be about 15 years ago now, there was all sorts of stuff going on. Um, and I don't know, you know, we kept seeing these films with dwarves and elves and all sorts of things. And it got my brain going, thinking... Hey, I wonder where, where these people get these ideas about elves and dwarves and whatever. And then I started having these weird dreams, Nigel. I actually dreamt I was back on the earth when it was first created and that there were three races, elves, dwarves and humans, called Medeans, elves, and I can't remember, and the Leems, those are the elves. And then there, there, there was a race war and people started fighting and I dreamt that we didn't speak originally, we were telepaths. And we could transport ourselves wherever we wanted to go. And then there was the race wars and um, incorporated in the in the flood in the Bible, you know, from the Christian religion. Uh, a spacecraft actually took a group of people off the planet and took them to another planet. Well, you and that do was have how a, my novel. You do have a very active, <laughs> very active imagination. <laughs> Yes. So from those dreams, I then started putting together this novel of what the original people on the earth were like, how they developed, um, you know, after the flood compared to the people who were taken off the planet. And then there was another war going on there. And eventually one of them ended up back on earth, Camille. And he, you know, was sort of studying the earth because they all thought everybody on the earth uh, had died and there was no, no, no living beings on the earth. And then as it, as it carries on, he, he meets this woman, falls in love, and then he finds out she's not what she appears to be. She's actually an alien too. <laughs> so they end up going back to his planet. And then that is when the story begins, because then the war really takes off and they, they get caught up in a love triangle. Oh, that sounds very in intriguing, actually. Very... That's the Mandari Chronicles, which has oh, okay. just, just been published. <laughs> so... What inspired you to write your first book? Right. What inspired me to write? As I said, you know, when I was little, when I first came here, um, you know, the, the black community was much closer. We had the partner. Everybody belonged to a partner because most people didn't have bank accounts. And you would take the money every week because I remember my mom sending me with the partner money um, to the lady down the street. And then we take it in turn to get that money. 
and we'd meet like at the weekends you know people would get together my family or friends everybody would bring a dish somebody would bring the fish somebody would bring the chicken somebody would bring the rice and peas and we'd all get together at the weekend and play music and just had a really lovely time we'd take in turn to go to each other's houses and it was the memories you know the men being told off you know, the, the older women, you know, it, it was, yes, yes, auntie, no, auntie. You know, you couldn't you couldn't raise your voice at them. And I wanted to capture those lovely memories because I was thinking times have changed so much. Even my children don't remember that. I've got two daughters. And I'm thinking I would like to capture these memories so that my grandchildren can see what my life was like growing up. So that was what inspired me to start to write the Pardon the Money stories. And I love Patwa. Um, I, I didn't even speak it properly when I was in Jamaica because I was in Kingston for my first three years. Um, my grandma used to tell me off if I tried to speak Patwa and said, I must speak properly, you know, because when I send you to England, I don't want your mother to tell me, tell me off. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then, of course, when I came here, because we lived in Withinshaw, it was an all white, I was the only black kid in my school, my primary school. So I had to lose my Patwa, the little Patwa I had overnight. So when I when I left home, I started listening to Miss Lou again, and one of my cousins is a Rasta. Whenever I went to his house, I'd listen to his friends and the way they spoke. I thought, right, okay, I'm going to learn to speak Patwa again, which is what so I've done. So my books are written in English, but with Jamaican Patwa dialogue. Okay, and how long did it take you to write your first book, Pardon the Money Stories? Oh, Years, Nigel, because I kept writing stories and I'd just leave them and then nothing happened. I had them all in a box. And uh, unfortunately, when I moved, that box was thrown out without me realising. So I lost quite a lot of my writing. Oh, dear. So I started writing again. And I was in a group. I can't remember. I don't think it was Facebook. And I was talking to this gentleman. He, he lives in Jamaica. And he was saying to me, oh, I see on the, on the group that, um, you know, you write. Send me something. Let me see one of the things that you write. So I, I sent him a story. And immediately he wrote me thinking, oh, my God, this is amazing. I love this. And he said to me that he knew... I forget the lady's name. She worked for the Jamaica Observer. It was a Sunday afternoon. They said, right, I'm going to send this to her. And the next time I speak to her, I'm going to tell her, you know, they need to publish your stories. Because the, the Jamaica Observer at the time had a pull-out magazine where they would publish stories each week. Anyway, he sent it. Obviously, must have emailed my story to this lady. About half an hour later, this is a Sunday afternoon, you know, Nigel. Half an hour later, I got a, a message from her. I love this story. We're going to publish it next week. Do you have any more? Oh, wow. <laughs> and the Jamaica Observer started publishing my stories for about two years, and they paid me. They published my stories more or less every week. And as a result, of that, a friend of mine sent one of my stories to somebody, and that, that was sent to Hansen Publication. And they contacted me to say, you know, we love your stories. Have you got any more? Um, have you thought of getting them published? And that was how my first book was published by Hansi Publication, the lovely Mr. Arif Ali. Mm. He published my first book without me doing anything at all. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you, because one of, one of the uh, pitfalls and obstacles of having your first book published is there are, or there can be, a lot of um, challenges. So... What kind of challenges did you face? Because it seems like you had quite an easy, quite an easy ride, really. 
Yes, I think I did because he sent me, uh, you know, all the, the, the stuff to read that I had to sign. And I was just so happy that I was getting my book published. I didn't even read it. I just signed it and sent it back, which I realized now was a huge mistake mm. because um, I'm finding out now that um, I can't get any of the royalties because they have to sell a certain amount of books before I can get any of the money. So I'm not getting anything. The only money I get are the books from the books that I sell from my website mm. or when I go to events. But it was fairly straightforward. I didn't have to do anything. And my books are available all over the world. So I thank Hansen, even though I'm not getting any money from them. They mm. are the ones who've advertised my writing. I, I'm told my books are on sale at both airports in Jamaica. I've had messages from people in Canada to say they've bought my books. I even went to Barbados, went to Bridgetown, went into this bookshop. And what did I see on the shelf? My book, Pardon My Story. Wow. <laughs> Believe it. So, so, yeah, so although, as I say, you know, there were a few things I wasn't happy with because publishing, as you know, is an absolute nightmare. Mm. But I must admit that Hansi Publication took all the pressure off me. They just did everything. Okay. And when was your first book published, Partner Money Stories, Volume 1? I had to check this morning, you know, because honestly, it feels like about 20 years ago. It was actually in 20, 2011, I think it was. Yeah, the first one was published in 2011. But as I said, it feels like it was a long time ago. And then it, 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 everybody liked liked it so much that, again, you know, Hansib asked me if I had any more stories. And the next year they published volume two. So I've had two volumes published, as I said. Okay. So you were telling us earlier about the science fiction book you've recently released are you working on any other writing projects at the moment i'm always working on something at the moment the thing that is in my head is this covid19 so i went on a course uh, last the end of last year a friend of mine a local businesswoman she runs courses um for women you know be all you can be and I went on this course and it was suggested that we should we should do journaling every day because, you know, we do so much and we hear they're everywhere and our poor brains are being burnt out. It's a way of offloading. So I started journaling last year. And then when all this COVID-19 stuff um, happened, I started writing um, poetry about it. So it's like I write a poem every day about what's going on in my head at the moment. Okay. <laughs> and I post, I post the other one on Facebook. But I've got so many now that I'm thinking maybe I should put them all together and have a third volume of poetry published. Okay. And what are your current thoughts on the current worldwide coronavirus pandemic? Nigel, that is a very complicated question because, yes, it's complicated because we are being bombarded with so much information and my sixth sense always seems to be on it. And in all honesty, my sixth sense is at the moment telling me that we're being told a load of nonsense mm. and I don't want to influence anyone, but for me, you know, I don't even bother reading the stuff that I'm sent now. But to me, it just doesn't make any sense. Mm. And this is, I'm just thinking, no, there's something more to this. This COVID-19 thing makes no sense. It doesn't add up. But again, you know, sometimes you just have to be careful because I said I don't want to influence anyone. 
Um, that's just my thoughts. Mm. So I've just been processing, you know, in poetical form, what I think, uh, you know, just what what is going on. But again, I'm just taking it one day at a time. There's no point stressing over something that we don't understand. Mm. We just have to wait and see what happens each day. Well, that is that is very true. I mean, there are a lot of um, conspiracy theories flying around about the you know the five mm. the five G um, telephone masks and yes, that's it. They're talking about five G, and I'm thinking, really? So why would people deliberately uh, invent something and put it out there if they know it's going to kill people and cause problems? It's not going to come back on them eventually, and how is that going to benefit anybody? As I say, you know, the, the, the jigsaw pieces, it's like they've all been thrown up in the air and they're not fitting together. Well, yeah, so I would agree with that. I mean, there is, I mean, I do a lot of research. I mean, I, I research for my own books because my books are more kind of reference related mm. as opposed to being, you know, created, you know, solely from someone's imagination, like your good self. Um, but... Yes, there are a lot of people sharing stories that haven't really got any basis in reality. I mean, I I received a meme um, a couple of weeks ago saying, oh, black people shouldn't go to the hospital because they're planning to exterminate us, etc., etc., you know. And to advise someone who's not well not to go to hospital... You that know. is just total nonsense because you're just scaring people and probably causing them to die or become seriously ill. Yeah, so, um, yeah, well, we'll see how it goes. I mean, no one really knows how mm. we're going to come out the other side of this pandemic, as it were. Um, I, oh. I, I think... And then again, they say... Sorry, Nigel, go on. No, I was just going to say that um, I think the current UK government's response has been shambolic, to say the least, mm. because the mm. first duty of any government of a country is to protect their citizens. And, oh yes, yes. And my I think pers- a lot more could have been done. Yeah, and my personal view is is that they have failed. But that's for another day. I, ha- I have to, I have to agree with you there, Nigel. But as I say, it's complicated. And there's the other thing where it's being said now that there is a higher percentage of BAME people who have suffered from COVID nineteen and who have died. And strangely enough, just in our community, the majority of people that I've heard who've got it are black male. You know, there are very few women that I've heard. You know, there, there are quite a number of people I've heard um, who, uh, uh, some of them are still in hospital. I think one gentleman has actually been released now and a couple of them have died and they're black males. Mm. So it just makes you wonder, is there really, is there something in that? Well, I think... In terms of um, vitamin D deficiency, a good friend of mine sent me an article uh, a couple of weeks ago, which was referenced by 157 doctors. And they were making mm-hmm. the case that because black people can often suffer a deficiency in vitamin D, that can then yes. make black people more susceptible to succumbing to the virus. Yes, I have heard that as well. And that's why I've been encouraging my family and everybody to go out in the garden as much as they can. You know, try and go out in the sun, take vitamin D3 and just, you know, try and look at their diet and basically just try and eat organic stuff, more fruit and veg and leave the fast food alone. Because I think that plays quite an important role in our health. 
Indeed. And, you know, when people were panic buying toilet paper, like it was going out. Like, <laughs> I, just, I just can't get, I can't get my head around that. Okay, you're going to go panic buy, panic buy bread, baked beans. That's I can understand. Butter. Panic buy toilet paper. Yeah. Why? <laughs> just, just, sorry, Nigel, why it just doesn't make any sense to me. Well, I was more concerned with my immune system, which I've always been concerned with anyway. So I was making sure yeah. I always stocked up with my ginger, my lemon, my garlic. Uh, there you go, Nigel, because that was what I stocked up on. Garlic, ginger, lemons and other fruits, which is what I've been overdosing on because I had really bad flu a few weeks ago and I was quite worried that it might have been, you know, mm. the horrible sea. But I spoke to my doctor and she, she said, without being tested, she couldn't actually say yes, but she said it just sounded like it was flu. And she asked me what I was doing and I told her, she said, no, that's perfect. You continue doing exactly what you're doing with your garlic, your ginger and whatever, because it seems to be working, mm. which is what I did. And I'm fine now. I had a horrible tickly cough that wouldn't go. But now, as, as soon as I start to get sort of croaky or whatever, warm water with, with lemon juice, you know, and I put ginger, I put um, garlic rather, garlic and onion in everything. And it seems to be working. Your garlic, your ginger, lemon juice, and top up on your vitamin C if you can get vitamin D3 and go out in the garden in the sun. Yes, indeed. Anyway, let's get back to your writing. Also, um, have you got a poem you can share with us? I have. I've got a poem. Um, you're probably sick to death of Corona, but I wrote this one. When, when all this thing first started, I was trying to get my head around it. I'm thinking, what's, what's all this stuff? So, I don't know. Do you want me to share this one? Of course. <clears throat> okay, excuse me. <clears throat> it's called 2020 coronavirus crisis. I wish someone had warned me of March 2020. Surreal and set to get worse. I thank God I am not a brave and vulnerable carer, doctor or nurse. Are we confused characters from a surreal science fiction film? Town and countries, continents on self-isolation lockdown at politicians' whim? Half-empty trains and buses half-empty or completely cancelled flights, bare shelves in shops, supermarkets or restrictions on what we buy, causing anger and fights. Like many others, curtailed, I'm wandering around in a coronavirus daze asking, really? Why? Are these the manifestation of end times actions predicted by numerous religions? How could this be happening? imprisoning people in fear in their homes, trampling independent visions. So where is God when numerous rivers across the planet have reportedly turned blood red? Is this the end? And should we prepare our souls? Because very soon we'll all be dead. So will Jesus, the saviour, now appear through dark threatening clouds from above? Earthquakes in diverse places, Humans full of horrific hate and having no love. Am I overthinking? Looking at the bigger picture instead of seeing heaven, thinking, what the hell? Is there something sinister going on? Satan in disguise, pulling the masses malleable strings while the elite are safe and well. Okay, Nigel, that's 2020 coronavirus wow. crisis. That is, um, that's very deep and very profound. Did you like that? Oh, yes. <laughs> 
It was my, my poor little brain going over time as usual. Well, it's always good to get it out. But coming back to um your writing, what do you think makes your book stand out from other books written on similar subjects? Well, the, the short stories, people always say to me that I've just captured the memories from their childhood because a few people have come to me and have said, wow, damn, that, that was my family. That's exactly the, the sort of things we, and that's what my grandma would have said. So, that you know, they buy volume one and they come back and buy volume two. And a lot of people buy them because they said the elders love listening to them. So I've got some audio versions now because, again, they say the older people, they love listening and they laugh their heads off, especially, you know, when I, I try to speak patois. <laughs> they, they like that. I, I think it's just, just wanted to capture something, you know, to, to pass on. Uh, to the younger generation. In terms of your favourite authors, who mm. are your favourite authors? And what are your top three ah, books? Now, <laughs> now you're asking. Nigel, at the moment, I've got, a, I've got a pile of books waiting to be read. Because I just don't seem to have... Well, I didn't have time before. And now, I don't know, I just... For, 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 writing, for reading, rather. Uh, Maya Angelou first jumped into my head. You know, she's the American poet. Yes. Uh, she's a singer, she does all sorts of poets, singer, civil rights activist, and she's written quite a few books, autobiographies, uh, poetry books, and then there's Alice Walker, and I think maybe, um, again, like I said before, Miss Lou, Louise Bennett, and it's mainly people who write about things, I think, that shine a light on the path for who we are. Um, another one which I quite like is Steve Harvey's book, um, Act Like a Lady, Think Like a Man. Because again, I think it just says so much about the problems that we're having at the moment in relationships. And Steve Harvey sort of explains, you know, how a man's brain works, how a woman's brain works, and how we could get on better if we just understood each other better. Yes, so I've got. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, I've got. I've got that book actually. I, I thought it was pretty good. Um, it's a bestseller. Um, some people mm. rubbished it, but I think it was very, um, very insightful, and it was written in, so in layman's too. terms. So I thought to myself, it was pretty good. I mean, one of my favourite quotations is um, Albert Einstein: "If you can't explain mm -hmm. it simply." You don't understand it properly. And I think he just explains it go. on a basic level. Yes, yes. Because there's no point writing something in highfalutin language that the man in the street doesn't understand. Mm. If you are wanting to reach a particular audience, like with me, I'm wanting to re reach you know, my people with my books, the younger generation, then I have to write things in a language that they will understand. So I write them in English, but I tone down the patois so that hmm. they can understand if they don't understand in a raw Jamaican patwa. Yeah, that's very true. And what advice would you give to someone who wanted to become an author and you know have their books out there? Yeah. Now, there you go. <laughs> we, we've all got, we, we have all got a book in us. We live such interesting lives, all of us, regardless of race or colour. And I actually facilitate writing workshops. So what I say to my students, you know, just write Get a notepad or on your computer and whatever comes in your head. Don't wait until you have everything in order and it's all there. Or if you have time, you won't. Get a notebook, carry it in your handbag, in your pocket, whatever. And as something comes into your head, just jot it down hmm. and write and rewrite. And that's the thing, you know, get the, the, the thoughts going and just jot those down first. And I call those the bones. 
Mm. And then make sure you do your research and get your facts right. Because fortunately, we've got Google now, but you have to be so careful. You can't really um, take for granted everything. You, you have to check different sites to make sure that you've got the facts. Mm, but if you're going to write about something, speak to the elders and check you know, Grandma, you know, what happened, you know, in 1950, Grandma? Did you really do so-and-so and so And What did you do? You know, check your facts. I think, I think that is the key. Mm. And make it interesting. You know, don't copy what anybody else has written. Write from your own unique perspective. Mm. And that is what I would say. And besides writing, what other activities are you involved with? Oh, my gosh. Um, at the moment, nothing. Yeah, I've got an empty diary. <laughs> but I do so many things because, as you probably know, I'm a qualified counsellor and cognitive behaviour therapist. And I also train people who want to become counsellors. Well, I did do, but the the um, the organisation has closed down. They're just doing online training. Hmm. So uh, I'm a tr- I'm a counsellor, I'm a trainer. I've been a foster carer for 20 years. I've fostered, I think, nearly about 39, 40 different young people, you know, with different support needs from about one and a half to teenagers. Wow. What else do I do? I go into schools and colleges and I do black history presentations. I organise um, events in the community, uh, you know, social events. <laughs> I do all sorts. Now, I go into all people's homes and read stories for them and encourage them to share their stories. I do all sorts, Nigel. Oh, busy woman. I wear many hats and I love I love everything I do. And that's the problem. That's why I can't give things up. So maybe this coronavirus thing is perhaps a good thing for me because I've been forced to give up all these things and take better care of myself. Mm. Well, I think it can be a, a blessing for many people. It just depends on their mindset. If, if you see it as something that is kind of restrictive and you, you know, you're not allowed to do this and not allowed to do that and you focus your energy on the negatives, then you're going to get more mm. negatives basically of course so yes. my attitude is to um deal with things that i can deal with within my co- my you know within my area of control i can't control what's going on out there so i need to focus on what i'm doing at home what what can i do like a podcast for, exactly. for example <laughs> yes you do what you can do what's right in front of you mm. and don't stress about things you can't do i just remember something else that i do actually i forgot I, I present a news program well i was doing but again station has closed down and the the guys are recording their stuff um i, I was presenting a fortnightly Car- african caribbean news and music program on one of our local radio stations. And that's something I've done for years for different radio stations. Because mm. I just think there's always negative news out there regarding BAME people. And I just wanted to share some of the positive news because there's so much that our people are doing. So I start off with local news, national, I go to Africa, wherever you know black people are, are doing things and excelling. And I share the positive news. So that's, that's another one of the hats I wear. Wow multitasking and multi-talented so Deanne how can people how can people contact you and how can they obtain your books right well um I have a website as I say you know you can get my books from Amazon and various other places but I don't get any of the money I only get the money if you buy them directly from me you can get signed copies of all four my my two short stories and my two uh poetry books and the novel will be on there soon and they're on my website and that is all the W's. That's www.pardnermoneystories. And that's P-A-R-D-N-E-R 
moneystories.co.uk. So if you go and find my website and you can buy, as I said, you know, signed copies on there, very reasonable. They're only $6.99. And, you know, you can really, or you can find me on Facebook, you know, just um, search Partner Money Stories by Diane Heron. You can see loads of examples of my poetry. Uh, what else? Or just in case, in case you can't find all of that, just go on Google and search Diane Heron, D-E-A-N-N-E Heron, H-E-R-O-N. And you'll see my website and loads of other information about me. Okay. And also, what are your future plans on your life journey? Have you got anything you really feel you want to do or need now, to do? Now, again, uh, Nigel, that's an interesting question. Because, you know, from the day I set foot in this country, nine years old, I told myself I was going to work, earn loads of money, buy a house in Jamaica and go back to Jamaica. But those plans in recent years have changed because... Uh, I'm not quite happy with the way things are going in my beautiful country. So my plan now is to possibly stay here, but go and spend maybe a month in Jamaica and a month in, you know, the different Caribbean islands, because Mm -hmm. I went to Barbados last year and absolutely love it. I've been to Gambia, which is where my my son-in-law is from. And it's like Jamaica when I was a little girl. So my plan now is perhaps not to retire completely uh, because I am um, of that age. My head, my head is full of grey hair. So my plan <laughs> is to semi, semi-retire <laughs> and spend more time, perhaps, you know, a month, a month at a time abroad in one of the Caribbean or one of the African countries. Okay. Well, thank you for your time, Deanne. And, um, no, thank you. Nigel, yeah. it's really lovely talking to you. And thank you for giving me the opportunity because I, I could talk all day. You know, I could just keep going. <laughs> so thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. You are very welcome. You take care. All right. We'll speak again soon, Nigel. Okay. Take care. All right. Bye now. Thank you for listening. Please join me for another In Conversations podcast very soon for more interesting and entertaining discussions. Stay safe.